So, if you were ever to visit my parents, um, they're wonderful people. I'm not certain why you'd want to visit them, but they're great people. You'd have a good time. Uh, but if you were to visit my parents, you could look through old photo albums. You know the old albums where you used to have the paper that peels off and you stick the pictures in there? You could find pictures of me in uh, our church's Christmas pageant every year. And I had two recurring roles in the Christmas pageant. I was one of the three wise men uh, once, and my costume as the three wise men literally was a Burger King crown. Remember the Burger King crowns? (laughs) It's pretty cool. It's a great picture. Uh, but my most prolific role was as a shepherd, uh, because they could, you only could have three wise men, right? At least that's what popular lore has, even though we have no idea how many there really were. They just brought three gifts. But you only had three of them. But shepherds, you could have as many uh, people as parents insisted their kid be in the pageant, right? And that was me. I never volunteered for this. There are pictures of me in um, my dad's bathrobe. Uh, with a with a small towel over my head and like a, one of those old um, curtain, you know, the big thick rope that holds the curtains back on the other side, around the towel and tied back. And so picture me like that all day today, uh, and you'll have a good idea of what a shepherd in the days of Jesus looked like, because that's exactly what he looked like. You know? Uh, we want to talk about the shepherds this morning, uh, and I want to give you, hopefully, it's kind of what this whole series is about, a, the human side of these people that we sort of have uh, put an idea of who they were onto, and we have them all neatly placed in our nativity scenes, and uh, they were perfect, and they look perfect, and uh, as all parents know, nativity scenes are for display, not for play, right? At least that's how it was in in my house. Um, And we don't have a good idea most of the time of who these people actually were, and what their background was, and how unbelievably radical it was that they would even be put in this story. Uh, so if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to, <clears throat> to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one on the back table. Luke chapter 2. This is Luke's recording of the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, this time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to, his, to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about his child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So in this story, once again, we have Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus arriving, but God choosing people, in essence, without their input. God doesn't, um, doesn't put a flyer out. He doesn't put a survey out. He doesn't interview a bunch of people and find the best. He simply shows up to these shepherds in the fields nearby. And he says, here's the deal. A baby's been born. He's going to be your savior. You should go to Bethlehem. You'll know who he is because he's going to be in a manger. And that would be out of the ordinary, of course, uh, to find a, a baby in that place. Uh, And he's going to be the one who was to come, the Messiah who was to come. God chose shepherds. And this is God's way. And we love to talk about our choosing God. But the the truth is, if God didn't choose us first, we'd never choose him. We always are looking for our own way, our own thing, our own stuff. And here he is again, uh, showing us this beautiful truth of God's pursuit of us. That the shepherds were literally chosen by God. People who are chosen by God. And God has an affinity for shepherds. I don't know why. God likes shepherds. He does. So when God is ready to to reconstitute his people after the scattering of people uh, at the Tower of Babel, he calls a man named Abraham, who was a very wealthy and a very successful shepherd, a rancher, a shepherd. Uh, And he brings uh, him and says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And so Abraham has these offsprings eventually, Isaac and then Jacob and then, of course, the 12 sons of Jacob and and more. And they're all shepherds. They're all people of the flock, as it were, until the Israelites end up in bondage in Egypt. You remember this story. By the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites are serving 400 years of slavery to the people of Egypt because they have consistently gone there for provision instead of seeking God. Uh, And their time in Egypt was, in many ways, very influential in the minds of the Israelites because through Egyptian sort of uh, cultural osmosis, as it were, the Israelites began to disdain the idea of being shepherds. They didn't like it anymore. Uh, Because the Egyptians looked at shepherds as the lowliest of the low. They were the worst of the worst. Egyptians were clean-shaven, clean-cut, elite leaders, and these these neighboring kingdoms and people groups were these rough and tumble, bearded uh, shepherds, people of the flock, and the Egyptians saw themselves as so much better and so much greater than all of these people. And so after 400 years of cultural osmosis and basically being told by the Egyptians that you're a lesser people than us, by the time the Israelites go back, Israelite culture disdains shepherds too. Shepherds are not sort of the glorified position that in our reading of the Scriptures today, we look at it and think, oh, God loves shepherds. Of course He does, because Jesus is the great shepherd. 
all of that stuff would have been revolutionary. When, Jesus, or excuse me, when God chooses David, it's not just that he's the, the youngest son. It's not just that he's not one of the warriors off battling uh, the Philistines. It's that he's a shepherd. It's revolutionary. Because in the minds of the Israelites, just like in the minds of the Egyptians, and you can find this at the end of, uh, of Genesis, there's a quote that basically says, uh, the, the Egyptians disdained shepherds. Right? Chapter and verse. And so for God to choose a shepherd to be the great king of all of his people would have been revolutionary in so many ways. And then once again, here we find him choosing shepherds. And hopefully you'll get the idea as we go along throughout this this morning that this was maybe even a more radical choice than choosing David uh, to be the first witnesses to God incarnate, as it were. See, God's ways are always countercultural, aren't they? God is constantly an out-of-the-box kind of God. Culture says, here are the people who you should choose for this job. After all, your son is coming, and you've got great plans for him, and this is a wonderful moment of incarnation. Uh, you should never choose shepherds for this. This is what culture would say to them. You know, we'll talk about this as we go along. Shepherds basically are the worst possible choice for this job. And yet, they're the very ones who God says, no, I want them, right? Have you ever felt that in your life? God's basically put a burden on you for something, and you're going, I'm the worst person for this job, right? Maybe it's when your first son or daughter arrived, and you're like, wait a minute, I've got to be a parent now? No, thank you. I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got to change diapers. I've got to go without sleep. I've got to do all of these things. And then over time, you find out that, no, he chose well, right? He knew what he was doing. He chose you to raise that son or that daughter, to be that mom, to be that dad, to have that ministry responsibility, whatever it might be that God's put on your heart. Culture always says, go for the grandest and the best. If culture was speaking in the days of Jesus' incarnation, he should have been born into an elite Roman family. Perhaps the son or daughter of Caesar himself. This would have been the way for God to announce it And yet God is so keenly uninterested in doing it culture's way because he doesn't want culture to have any of the credit for what he does. God is desperate and jealous for his own glory. In fact, it's just God's way all throughout Scripture to choose people who culture wouldn't choose in the circumstances. Think about this. We've done this sort of when we talked about Mary, but think about this for a moment. When God is looking for the perfect specimen to be the father of a great nation, he chooses a 75-year-old man with no kids. This is what God does. When God is looking to rescue his people from a gargantuan flood, he chooses a rogue farmer out in a village who probably has never built a ship in his whole life. When God is looking for the great new king of Israel, he picks the runt of the litter, the shepherd who's out in the field. When God is looking to redeem his people from 400 years of captivity, In Israel, he picks a guy with a speech impediment who has zero confidence in himself and, oh, by the way, is a fugitive from the country in which God is going to send him back into. This is what God does. When God needs to have a great military conquest in the book of the Judges, he picks the most terrified, the most anxious man maybe in all of Scripture, a guy named Gideon. Right? This is what God does. And then when God is ready to bear his son into the world, he chooses Mary, a teenage woman of 
no means, and no great circumstance. God is always interested in working to rescue His creation through His creation so that He gets all of the glory. This is what He does. And I think He does it in this way because it is a profound way to speak to everyone else the way in which the power of God can overcome the circumstances of people. Even Paul himself, who's this great lawyer and orator, who is is chastising and killing Christians, and God says, that's the guy I want to to start my church uh, to to the Gentile world. He basically says in, in almost all of his letters, listen, I don't have any great arguments for this. My great arguments were against this. But I now know it's true. So Paul would say, even in the midst of the thorn in the flesh, that God's grace is sufficient in his weakness, that God's power, was he right to the Philippians? That he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. This is the means of God. And so we should be not surprised in any way that God chooses shepherds. But let's talk about why it is so surprising. The first thing that God does in choosing shepherds is he chooses them, I think, to embody the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel, his selection of shepherds, if you really think about it for just a moment. The the biggest reason why is because God is shattering just about every barrier that existed in the time, uh, in that day and age uh, for Jewish people. He's, He's shattering societal barriers. Listen to this. Shepherds were not only disdained, basically the only class of people in, in the days of Jesus below shepherds were lepers. Well, if you know anything about lepers, you know that it's not a, great, um, not a great praise of someone to say, hey, you're better than a leper, you know. This is what it was like to be a shepherd. Uh, they basically had no civil responsibilities and no civil rights. They were off on their own doing their own thing. In fact, most people thought of them as liars and thieves. And some of that came, a lot of that came with good evidence to prove that, in fact, they were liars and thieves. Whenever things got a little difficult financially, you could expect perhaps one of the lambs to go missing. He got caught off somewhere, he got separated from the flock, or maybe better yet, I sold him for money and put it in my pocket. This is what the people thought of. In fact, shepherds usually did not own their own sheep. They were hired hands for people who could afford them to care for the sheep because they didn't want to have to do it. This is who they were. They were the the lowest of the low, the lowliest and the poorest people in any area in which they lived. The Mishnah, which is sort of the, the Jewish rabbi's teaching based on Torah, based on the Old Testament. This is what they said. Listen to this. This is astonishing. This is what they said about shepherds. He says that shepherds were, quote, incompetent, unquote. And this is what they said to people about shepherds. If you find them along the road stuck in a pit, you should feel no pressure to rescue them. This is what the Mishnah said about shepherds. Can you believe this? So, when Jesus is born and the angels show up first to shepherds, this is revolutionary. Why on earth would this be happening? You know, the whole chapter starts off, and this is sort of why we read the whole chapter, it starts off with the introduction of Caesar Augustus. And I think Luke, although Luke's a detailed guy, and he's a scientist, and basically a doctor by trade, and so he, he, details are important to him, 
But I think maybe more importantly than the fact that he wanted to sort of date when all of this happened and show why they were in Bethlehem, there's something to be said about contrasting the arrival of Jesus to the position of Caesar. That basically Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem because Caesar spoke a word, and therefore Jesus had to be born there. And yet, oh by the way, God intended it for, God intended for it to happen that way. What does it say about where he was born? There were shepherds nearby. He was born in the place of the shepherds. That even by decree of the most powerful person on earth in that day, God supersedes it and puts it all into place so that he would be born in the place of the shepherds. For the shepherds. Listen. I do not know where you rank in society's crazy hierarchy or ladder of things. (laughs) I have no idea how to figure any of that out. I don't know if you're cool or not cool, if you're powerful or not powerful. I don't know if you're popular or unpopular, but here's what I do know. That when the incarnation happens, Jesus quite literally, as one paraphrase interpretation of of the beginning of the first chapter of John says, that the, the Word became flesh and He moved into the neighborhood. That he moved into your neighborhood. That no matter if you would relate more to shepherd than than the emperor of the Roman Empire, that he moved into your neighborhood. There's no social status, no position, uh, no no position of powerlessness, of, of poverty, no position of having nothing that can separate you from the arrival of Jesus for you. You don't have to be someone of means. Either spiritual means or monetary means or physical means to embrace the arrival of Jesus for you. That through His coming, He shatters all societal barriers. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Galatia. Before the coming of faith, This is Galatians 3.23. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, not a slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. When Jesus is born and the shepherds become the first ones to experience it, this is the, this is the genesis of Paul's whole thought line here. That Jesus is for all. And friends, in many ways, it's just as revolutionary in our day as it was in the days of Jesus, is it not? Most of us think that we have to have something to offer God. And yet the shepherds brought nothing. Most of us think that we have to achieve some level of ability in order to be pleasing to God. And yet the shepherds were the lowest of the low smashing societal boundaries. And not just societal, by the way. Smashing purification boundaries. Smashing purity boundaries. Smashing priestly 
boundaries. Listen to this. Not only to be a shepherd was it to have a lowly profession, to be poor, to be on the road all the time, to be away from family, to have no civil uh, responsibilities or, or duties, to have no uh, power or prestige in society, but it was also to be ritually unclean 24-7. They could never keep the Sabbath because they had sheep to watch. You hired a shepherd so that you could keep the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, the things that the shepherds had to deal with, carcasses of animals, bugs, rats, mice, all of these things were ceremoniously unclean. And there was ways in which you could purify or cleanse yourself, but there's no record of the shepherds taking a mikvah bath before they come to see the baby, is there? Did we read that? No, I don't think so. There's no record of them going and offering appropriate sacrifices to become pure. They're ushered right into the presence of Jesus, who is God incarnate, without any purification. Without any. Right from the field, right from the dirty place, right from not keeping Sabbath, right into the presence of Jesus. And even before they get it, did you catch what it says about them? That the glory of God what, shone around them. That God was able to bear His glory in front of these ritually unclean people. This is astonishing and revolutionary. And yet, Jesus is coming to bring the new covenant that was prophesied. A law that would be kept inscribed in the hearts of man instead of inscribed on tablets of stone. A law that was to be internally materialized rather than externally applied. That you're no longer pure because you can put on a nice garment of holiness on the outside, but you're pure because God actually can create in you a new heart, as David says. And therefore, from the inside out, you become a new person. That you no longer have to purify yourself to get to the presence of God. That Jesus takes care of that for you. Listen, friends, there is no list of sins. There is no list of uncleanliness. There is no list of of wrongs. There's no weighing good versus bad that can keep you from Jesus. He literally, in the incarnation, moves into your neighborhood. And though we be ritually unpure, we're ushered right into His presence and therefore access directly to God. Do you see this? You do not have to be a religious person. You do not have to, to keep religious morals perfectly before you meet God. In fact, I think if you've done that and you come to God, you're going to have a hard time embracing God for who He is. The truth is you are changed because you have met God. This is what happens to the shepherds. You don't change yourself in order to meet God. Revolutionary. The boundaries and the barriers that are smashed simply by bringing the shepherds into this story. Think how easy it would have been not to include them. But yet the shepherds are the first ones who show up. And I love this. It says in the story, listen, I want to read this. This is what it says to the shepherds. Today, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Luke, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. Did you catch that when we read that? He's not talking about people, right? The shepherds perhaps would have known and understood the idea of Messiah, depending on how 
ingrained they were into the, into the Judaism of the day. Everyone was looking for this Messiah for, for the nation, right? But very specifically, the angels say to the shepherds that, that this child has come for you. Right? We don't know how many there were. Maybe there were three or two or four or five. But it was just for them. This message was just for them. And sometimes we miss the personal reality of the incarnation of Jesus. I like to think of it this way, and this is true. That if you were the only person on the earth, He still would have come. That it wasn't because there were billions who needed Him, but that you needed Him. And that I needed Him. This is the same message that God offers to us that He did to the shepherds. That He came for you. Radically astonishing. And in the same way that God had arrived for the shepherds through Jesus, He arrives for us. This is what I love. When, when, when Jesus shows up, and I don't know if this is true, maybe I'm playing a little hard with the Scriptures. You, you decide. Uh, fair enough if you disagree with me on this one. But I think part of the reason that He was born and laid in a manger, we're told specifically by the angels that this is a sign for the shepherds. Right? That He's laid in a manger. And to me, it, it couldn't be any more contextually relevant than for a shepherd. We think coming to a manger is cool, but that means nothing to me. But imagine being a shepherd and being told, here's the one who's come to rescue you, and then you see him perfectly in your context, right? Amongst the animals and in the manger. That, that the whole reason for him coming that way was specifically for shepherds and for people like them. He didn't just allow them to come to Him, but He literally and contextually came to them. And in the same way, what does the New Testament tell us about us? That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God just doesn't summon us to come meet Him. That He comes to and for us. It's the contextual beauty, I think, of the Incarnation. Here are shepherds who are the the total last choice societally and the total last choice in terms of purity, and yet God says, no, they're the ones. They're the ones I want. That's right, them. And I'm not going to just make them get clean and summon them and make them take a long journey to prove that they really want this. I'm going to show up right in their place, right? It says nearby. There were shepherds nearby. And I'm going to... I'm going to show up in a manger that is contextually perfect for them. See, Jesus didn't just come to save the sins of the world, although He did and we're grateful for it. He came contextually into your mess to deal with your mess for you. He didn't say, step out of your mess and come find me. He said, here I am, right here in your mess for you. This is radical and unbelievable. And then maybe the most radical of it all is not only were they chosen, not only were they chosen to embody the gospel, but they were chosen to bear witness. Now, you've got to understand that shepherds uh, were considered the most unreliable witnesses uh, in the day. In fact, if, uh, if you were to get, imagine this happening, if you were to get carjacked outside of here today, and the rest of us were off praying because we're holy and you're not, 
And, and the only person to witness it, witness it was a shepherd, right? In the days of Jesus, there was nothing you could do because a shepherd would not, be, his testimony would not be admissible in court. He was not considered trustworthy. He was a thief. He was a liar. He would make something up. If they were the only one to witness it, then the crime never happened. And yet, who does God choose to be the sole witnesses of the arrival of Jesus? Shepherds. Now, could you not think of a million better choices? First of all, how about all the people who are desperate for the Messiah to show up? Wouldn't they be a great choice? And they've been studying the Scriptures and longing for the time and waiting for the moment. And if God showed up to them miraculously and showed it to them, don't you think they would have embraced it? And yet, who does He show up for? Shepherds. Partly because Jesus would later say that I came for the sick and not those who think that they are well. Astonishing that He would choose them to bear witness for Him. And here's the truth and the reality. I think this is why it happens. Because the only way their testimony becomes admissible is if they are radically changed, right? If they're almost unshepherd like now that they've experienced this reality. And the shepherds bear witness in two ways. And catch this, because I think this is really important. The first way they bear witness is, is internally, and the second way is externally, right? It says they, let me just read it again. It says they come, they come and, they, and they bear witness to the people who are present. Uh, at the birth. So let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him and spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. So there's this internal reality uh, of bearing witness about what God had told the shepherds and coming it there. So you've got this first group of people who maybe are present or a villager or family members in the area where Jesus is born, and they hear it, it says they wonder. They're amazed, it says. And the Greek word there has that connotation. They're amazed, they're astonished, they're unbelievable. It has the idea of they're being personally struck by the reality of it. But it also has this idea of beginning to really ponder this. Beginning to think hard about it. Beginning to question it. In other words, they're wrestling through. Is this true? Is this real? Is it possible? Could this be exactly as you're saying? And then there's Mary, right? And what we hear from Mary is that she treasured this in her heart. And why would she do this? Because finally, someone other than her and Joseph has heard the same message. And in God's kindness, He delivers them right to Mary to affirm Mary and Joseph's obedience to the call of God on their life. And she treasured it. Perhaps this was the moment, the shepherd's arrival, where Mary was finally willing to say, you know what? I've been following along on this in in 60% of faith or 70% of faith. Maybe this was the time when she finally said, you know what? This is all really happening. And it's true who this baby is the kindness of God that the shepherds would bear witness internally. Now check this out. Way too often, the church has said that we are to bear witness only externally. Though we take the message of Jesus and we take it outside. We take it to the far, and we should, and it's good, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what about bearing witness internally? 
the church should be a place of, of radical and consistent gospel declaration. You should not be able to show up in a church gathering, be it a social function, be it, be it a Sunday morning gathering, be it a community group, be it whatever program of whatever church you're at, and not be struck by the gospel anew. It must be proclaimed consistently and time and time again. Why? Because two things are true about people who are gathered. One, they need to be affirmed in the truth of the gospel, or two, they need to be caused to question it more because they haven't quite got there yet. You see this? And so it is incumbent upon you and incumbent upon me to the people who are next to you, to the people who are around you, from you to me and me to you, to make the gospel known to each other consistently. You make the gospel known to me and it might be the affirmation that I need to say, you know what, we're blazing the right course here. We're doing it right. You might think, well, he's studied at seminary and he's gone to Bible college and he's been preaching and he knows way more about that. But the gospel is the simplest and purest truth and we all need to hear it consistently. And far be it from any of us to think that we've got a corner on it and have fully understood it or that all of us have bought into it completely. The church is the place for gospel proclamation. Can I suggest to you, in maybe a bold and radical way, you better be proclaiming the gospel way more at church than you do outside of church. I would love for you to proclaim it out there, but maybe three more times as much in here. Because gospel proclamation outside of here is very countercultural, and for most people makes zero sense. But we get it. We understand it. And we need it. And we need the affirmation that comes from it. We need the power to go on in discipling our children in it. We need the affirmation to go on in trying to live a countercultural life in the midst of coworkers who are pulling us radically far away. We need the questions to ask so that when a crisis comes, we're not pulled away from our faith, but affirmed in our faith. Do you see this? That in the kindness of God, He brought shepherds to affirm Mary. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps God in His kindness is bringing you in the path of others to affirm in them the truth of the Gospel. But their witness is not just internal, it's external. And it says they go off praising and glorifying God. And this strikes me. Because they bear witness to the message internally. It says nothing about bearing witness to the message externally. It just says they go off praising and glorifying God. Maybe you'll totally disagree with me, but I think this is something important for you to hear. The church is the place for gospel proclamation. And the outside is the place for worship. And we have reversed it. Could it be that radically worshiping God wherever you are outside of here and reorienting your life around Him because that is what holistic worship is about after all. It's not about singing good songs. We love singing good songs, but that's not worship. But if you are so radically given to worship that you can't help but go out through the rest of your life centered completely on Jesus and the truth of the Gospel, fully given to it, you're going to be radically changed from who you were. You continue to be who you were, but you are repurposed in who you are in a radically new way. And can I tell you and promise you that that will have a far greater impact on the nations than any proclamation of a message that you have. I find it radical that when, when the shepherds show up as the people to bear witness, they're not given a press release kit, you know? They're not given a social media strategy. They're not given a stump speech, 
They're not given any of these things. They simply go away praising God. And that's exactly the kind of testimony to the arrival of Jesus that God desires. I'm not telling you we shouldn't worship God when we come together. Of course we should. But man, if you are not worshiping God in the 24-7 of Monday through Saturday, then you've missed the boat. Can I suggest to you even that maybe you haven't really experienced God in the same way that the shepherds did? Because it will radically change you. And likewise, rather than feeling the burden to, to craft up a perfect message to convince someone that, you're, that your religion is better than their religion, which is silliness, right? If you were fully given to worship and engaging in true relational connectivity to people around you, they're going to ask you the questions that Peter reminds his readers to be ready to answer, Right? Rather than coming through like a rock through a window saying, you should believe what I believe because I'm better than you. you know? Listen, evangelism like that, I'm giving it a bad name right now. Of course, it is good and right to declare the gospel in its way. But you get the picture of what's happening in the lives of the shepherds here, right? The gospel proclamation is an internal reality, not just external. And that worship is an external reality, not just internal. This is the way that God intended for the message to go out. And that he intended to use people completely unqualified for the job, right? You might think, gosh, this is what I think, right? My neighbors know I'm a pastor, and it might be to my detriment, you know, because we live in a twin, and I don't know how, how thick the wall is between my house and theirs, but I would wager to guess they've heard me yell at my kids, right? And even though I might not use crazy language, they've heard me be angry with my kids, They've heard my kids stomp up the steps with little footsteps, and they've heard a big guy stomp up the steps right after them. You know, they know what's going on. You know? like I'm completely unqualified to say, oh, you should live like me and love Jesus. You know, But yet I'm completely qualified because God takes someone like me and changes me and says, you know what? It's not because of your perfection that you're allowed to enter. Jesus takes care of that. You see this? that you actually are completely unqualified for this job. Right? Let me give you the bad news first. You, like me, should be passed over for this job. And yet, through God's kindness and graciousness, He has chosen us. And if you are chosen to receive Christ, then you are chosen to bear witness. And therefore, you have a choice of your own. Do you live into it? Or do you ignore it? And I think the truth is, whether you've simply heard the message and said, you know what, I'm going to stay on the mountainside with my sheep, or whether you journeyed to Bethlehem to see this thing that God had done. Because if you do that, if the gospel sinks deep, if you meet Jesus in the true way that he has come to save you, then you can't help but bear witness. Not in some crafty evangelistic program. If you've got a good one, let me know. Like, we love evangelism. But I'm just convinced all throughout Scripture that the way people come to faith is that broken people live in worship in their presence and are committed to God even in the midst of their own brokenness. And this is the beauty of the Gospel. Friends, shepherds were the worst choice that God could have made and yet the best because they embody the truth of what Jesus came to do for you and me.
to scrape us off the bottom of the rack. Here's the truth of the Gospel. Tim Keller says this all the time, and he's so dead on, that, that we are far worse than we're willing to admit, and we are also far more loved than we're willing to accept. This is us. We don't deserve God's favor. Even the best of us, even the most moral, even the most religious, we don't earn God's favor. We can't. We're the bottom of the barrel. I went to pick up lunch for Rachel and her coworkers on Friday, and they had ordered separate lunches. And so I'm at Panera in a time crunch trying to find all these names, so I don't even know who they are. And I grabbed two of them, and I couldn't find the third one. I was arguing, or not arguing, but questioning. <laughs> I don't know what the right way to say it is. The, the, the workers, in a nice way, uh, hey, where's this person's Lindsay? Where's her stuff? Where is it? Where is it? And I can't find it. And they're saying, we've got nothing from Lindsay. And I'm calling Rachel, and Rachel's going, well, you've got to wait for it. And I had some place to be. And all this time, it was sitting right in front of me. It was just on the bottom rack, you know? I didn't look down there. The world never looks down there, but that's where we are. God has his eyes perfectly fixed on those who need him. And he calls us. And through the beauty of the gospel, he makes our union with God possible through Jesus. That purity is no longer dependent upon you, but on him. And therefore, go make it known to each other and to the world.